We praise you, Lord, that we can sing that with confidence because of what Christ has done to secure us, to provide forgiveness of sin, to draw us into your presence, which we do not deserve. But we thank you that you are holding us fast, that you are keeping us in the faith, that you are preserving us from the destruction of our souls. And we come to you now and strive to continue to learn from your word as we've heard it read and as we have sung it. May we now consider the text carefully. And may you do and accomplish in this time together what only you can do. We pray that by your Spirit you will teach and bring conviction of sin, bring strength to our souls as we strive to be faithful to our calling to walk with you in love and fidelity and according to the truth that you have revealed. Thank you for this time together and I pray that you'd meet with your church and here counsel us and direct us. For some, will you hear, warn, and guide, rebuke, and offer forgiving grace. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Please be seated. We might picture God's Word like a lighthouse on a solid rock in a changing sea of human affairs. The sea is sometimes calm and peaceful. The sea is sometimes turbulent and chaotic, but the lighthouse of God's Word stands immovable. It shines its light, but remains impregnable in the face of even the most angry, raging sea of man's resistance against it. That lighthouse reveals counsel and blessing. It reveals warning and destruction to all who beat against its position. But rage as they may, the lighthouse of God's Word never moves, never changes course. It always shines forth the light of truth, and it always will. The prophets of Israel were the mouthpieces of that truth. Sometimes the prophet's message was received humbly and obediently by the kings and the people of Israel. More often and uniquely so throughout the ministry of the prophet Elijah, the raging ways of resistance to God's word just persisted. Serving as God's mouthpiece to the apostatizing Israelites was no career path to popularity and acclaim. Yet throughout the 30-year ministry, Elijah stood his ground and proclaimed mostly warning and judgment to the hard-headed, hard-hearted, God-rejecting Israelites. Rage against God's revealed truth, and it's not God's word that's going to crumble. You will. Elijah prophesied again and again to Israel and her kings. This narrative that we find in First Chron- or Second Chronicles chapter 21 is another episode in Elijah's faithful ministry. Now this narrative uh, is likely the last recorded prophetic message of Elijah's ministry, probably following the narrative that we find in Second Kings chapter 1, which we hope to look at next week. There's a really important reason why I've taken these two sermons probably out of chronological order. And that very important reason is that I failed to work out the chronological order ahead of the deadline for last week's bulletin. 
But I thought, rather than change that up and everybody reading that passage through the week, we'll just stay with it. And in fact, they probably took place very closely together. We couldn't probably prove which one came before the other. But I think probably this is the, the last recorded act that we see in the prophetic office of Elijah. We witness here in this chapter a negative demonstration of the importance of aligning our lives with God's Word. That is no novel concept to us by any means. This is common fare for us as we consider the Word of God, but it's also a common topic that we find in Scripture again and again, how significant it is for us to remember this important point, and here to look at it from a very negative context. Honor it, and it yields counsel and blessing. Spurn God's Word, and it yields warning that gives way to judgment. It's a simple equation that was the working stuff of Elijah's ministry, and to a significant degree, the life of every faithful believer in Christ. As we come to this chapter, we note, first of all, a summary account of Jehoram's godless legacy. Verse 1 of chapter 21, 2 Chronicles 21. Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, and Jehoram his son reigned in his place. So we're shifting here from the northern kingdom, that's been all of our focus in Elijah's ministry, to the southern kingdom. King Jehoshaphat, like his father Asa before him, was a respected and godly king. Jehoshaphat fought idolatry, he promoted the worship of the one true and living God in Judah, And he was buried with his fathers, that he was buried with honor. He was a man of some capacity, militarily, politically, but more importantly, he was a man of God, a man who sought to establish the worship of the Lord in Judah. That fact, his burial, that fact there that we find in verse 1 will prove important later on. But notice verse 2, he had brothers, that is, Jehoram had brothers, the sons of Jehoshaphat, Azariah, Jehiel, Zechariah, Azariah, Michael, and Shephatiah. All these were the sons of Jehoshaphat, king of Israel. And their father gave them great gifts of silver, gold, and valuable possessions, together with fortified cities in Judah. But he gave the kingdom to Jehoram because he was the firstborn. Now, maybe you caught it there, but there's two Azariahs. This like, hi, I'm Larry. This is my brother Daryl, and that's my other brother Daryl. There's about ten people here that understood that one. <laughs> but if you're old enough, you remember the Daryl and the other brother Daryl. That's not what's going on here. The Hebrew text name, that reads named differently, Azar, Azar Yah and Azar Yahu. They were very close, but they were different names. Why it doesn't get into the English text, I don't know. Probably rules of anglicized text forms or something of the like. They were two different names. But King Jehoshaphat cared well and wisely for his sons, which is the point here. And as we see in verse 3, he spread them out across the land at militarily strategic places fortified cities, and he supplied them with wealth that would allow them to labor there, to lead there uh, with some capacity. 
But Jehoram, the oldest, was crowned king in keeping with the right of the firstborn. Now, the the right of the firstborn could be passed on to someone else should that firstborn prove incapable. But it would always start with the firstborn. That was the right of the firstborn according to Deuteronomy. These are important facts. As we get the lay of the land, Jehoshaphat, his wisdom, spreading out the influence, spreading out the resources, establishing his rule in a very effective way. But at verse 4, the narrative turns very dark. When Jehoram had ascended the throne of his father and was established, he killed all his brothers with the sword and also some of the princes of Israel. This depraved practice was somewhat common among the pagan kings. You take out your brothers as the people who are most likely to cause you trouble to try to take the throne from you. A new king would thus eliminate the chief threats to his throne. And often these brothers had, would have different mothers within the king's harem. They weren't as close, but it was also just a very cruel age. And so to maintain your power, you take out everybody that might potentially cause you some sort of trouble that way. And for Jehoram, he also killed some of the key leaders who might likely object, most likely to object to the brothers that he killed. But whether the nations did it or not, this was not common in Judah, and it was a raging rejection of God's law. But for eight years, life simply went on. We can put ourselves in this chaotic, morally raging situation. If we picture it as the sea, it's, it's very, it, there's great upheaval here. There's a rejection of God's word. This man wipes out his brothers, wipes out other leaders in Israel, and he just goes on leading for another eight years. Probably more, actually, depending on how we work out the co-regency with his father. Well, this is no isolated event in Jehoram's story. Verse 5, Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem and he walked in the way of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done for because the daughter of Ahab was his wife and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He married Ahab and Jezebel's daughter Athaliah who proved to be every bit her mother's daughter. Athaliah was a godless, vile woman. She was so cruel that she killed off all of her grandchildren in order to seize and secure Judah's throne. She missed one, and that caused her trouble in the end, but she had no problem, can you imagine it, killing all of your grandchildren so that you could rule? That's who this woman is. That's his wife. So in Judah, as in Israel, the sea of depravity was in a state of utter upheaval. The waves of rebellion pounded away at the lighthouse of God's truth. What would give? What would give in this situation? We read a word of grace, a word that comes from the heart of our God in verse 7. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made with David and since he had promised to give a lamp to him, that is, a son to reign, A lamp to him and to his sons forever. Descendants would rule David's throne forever. 
In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made this promise explicit that that King David's dynasty would continue. He said, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now Jehoram deserved to be deposed. He deserved to have his dynasty ended, just as Omri's would be through Jehu taking out uh, the, the kings of Israel. That is exactly what Jehoram deserved. <clears throat> but he was a son of David. And God does not break his promises. So a king of David's line will rule on his throne forever. Not in an unbroken string of Davidic kings, of course. That's obvious to us to this day. But God gives his word that the dynasty of David, a son of David, will reign forever. And so he does not end Jehoram's rule here. Though he very well could have. God God's hatred of sin would have commended the end of this dynasty. But his promise to David ruled it out. A promise ultimately fulfilled in our Savior's rule and reign. Well, the wheels begin to come off of Jehoram's reign. You cannot rage against the truth of God with no consequence. And here it comes, beginning in verse 8. The wheels come off. In his days... Edom revolted from the rule of Judah and set up a king of their own. Then Jehoram passed over with his commanders and all his chariots, and he arose by night and struck the Edomites who had surrounded him and his chariot commanders. So Edom revolted from the rule of Judah to this day. There's a bit of confusion there in in that passage, but it seems fairly clear. Israel had governed Edom since the rule of King David. Think of this in contrast. Here is the the legacy. Here is the legacy that Jehoshaphat had. And they taught in Judah, having the book of the law of the Lord with them. They went about through all the cities of Judah and taught among the people. Just set that aside for now, but put it in the back of your mind. They're traveling through Judah to teach the word of of God to help the people follow the Lord. This is the effort that Jehoshaphat makes. And the fear of the Lord fell upon the kingdoms of the lands that were around Judah. That's a providential work of God. And they made no war against Jehoshaphat. But what do we see here? What we see here is the kingdom beginning to fall apart. And while the text is a little confusing, apparently Jehoram had to fight not to defeat his enemy, but to escape his enemy. He was close to destruction, but was able to fight his way back, but his military campaign was a disaster. The Edomites were victorious, and Israel's powerful position in the region was severely diminished. Continuing in verse 10, Edom revolted. At at that time as well, Libna also revolted from his rule because he had forsaken the Lord, the God of his fathers. Libna was a city-state to the south near Edom, and they also broke free of Judah's rule at the time. Why? Because he had forsaken the Lord, the God of his fathers. This is covenantal language. Under the old covenant, this would not happen Had Jehoram walked in obedience and fidelity to the Lord? Had he continued to trust the Lord? But it did happen because he had broken covenant with God. 
God promised Israel that fidelity to him would secure his protection and blessing upon them. If Israel followed God's counsel, blessing would follow them. But in light of this glorious covenant, Jehoram chose what? He said, that's what God's word says. That's what God promises. I choose the life, the sensual practices of my heathen wife. I want the ways of Phoenicia. I want that wicked worship, that flesh-satisfying worship. That's what I choose, not the blessing of God. In verse 11, moreover, he made then, in keeping with that attitude, high places in the hill country of Judah and led the inhabitants of Jerusalem into whoredom and made Judah to go astray. That's not where Judah was. We just noticed in that passage just before how Jehoshaphat sent people out to heed the word of the Lord, to teach the word of the Lord, to instruct and encourage and build up God's people and God's truth. Jehoram's running the exact opposite direction. Under Jehoram, the culture of Judah was like a violent, chaotic sea of sin surging against God at every opportunity. They sought to bring down the law of God, the truth of God, and to live in obedience to their sensual passions. That's what happened at these high places. They were godless places set up in direct rebellion against God. The nations raged. This nation raged. And, but by so doing, the only thing that happens is that Jehoram brings down upon himself the curse of God. He made his Judah to go astray, choosing to disregard the counsel of God and leading others to follow him. This is the summary account of Jehoram's godless legacy. After he killed his brothers, nothing happened. All seemed to just go on the way that it was. But something's always happening when God rules, which he always does. And so Elijah enters the picture, issuing a written prophecy of pending judgment against Jehoram. This is not going to end well, he makes very clear. Verse 12, And a letter came to him from Elijah the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, because you have not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat, your father, or in the ways of Asa, king of Judah, your grandfather, but have walked in the way of the kings of Israel, like Ahab, and have enticed Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, into whoredom, as the house of Ahab led Israel into whoredom, and also you have killed your brothers of your father's house, who were better than you. Verdict, behold, the Lord will bring a great plague on your people, your children, your wives, and all your possessions. Jehoram dismissed God, and so God determined disaster for him. Jehoram could have chosen to follow the godly example of Jehoshaphat, his father, Asa, his grandfather. He does not. He chose rather to find company with Ahab's clan and with his wife, Athaliah. He also led Judah down that same path, falling into the sin of Baal worship in the land of promise. And living like a pagan king, killing off his brothers, God finally said, enough. 
He needed to walk with God by faith, not turn murderous schemes into the realities that he, by which he sought to save his day. God's judgment would fall on Jehoram's people, his family, his prized possessions, but God would also inflict punishment upon him, Jehoram himself. Verse 15. And you yourself will have a severe sickness with the disease of your bowels until your bowels come out because of the disease day by day. We're not able to specifically identify this disease, but do we really need to? Uh, it is obviously really bad. No matter what name you give it, when you die of your bowels passing your body, that's about as humiliating and horrifying as it could get. Most likely, Jehoram would spend the last two years of his life moving from royal bed to royal toilet. That's how he lived it out. In utter agony. Now, let me stop here for a moment. We're going to branch off into a little rabbit trail. But because our focus is on the prophet Elijah, I want to pause here to make some observation about his ministry to Jehoram specifically here. Elijah's primary ministry took place in the northern kingdom of Israel. But here he sends word, written word, to the southern kingdom. Some commentators seeing that go so far as to say this is a different Elijah. I don't think it's a different Elijah. He's in the context where we know him to be. And for a different Elijah to be introduced here without any explanation would knowingly confuse us. And so I don't think any narrator would do such a thing. Others would argue that Elijah was dead by this point, but there's no proof of that. I think what's happening here is that he sends this letter at the very end of his ministry, and at the very beginning of Jehoram's ministry. That's the view that I would take. But more importantly, observe that Elijah was not a writing prophet. Yet his message here is in written form. It is a letter to the king. So the medium by which God conveys truth in this case are written words. We take this as believers somewhat for granted. We've become very used to this idea. But let's consider it again because it is so vital to our faith. God conveys his truth in written words. Human language is not a perfect medium to convey God's truth. Words can confuse us at times or prove limited in what they express. We all understand this. But human language is a sufficient medium by which to convey God's truth. It is the medium that God chose. I will convey my mind to my people through written words. As Elijah's letter makes clear, the written words of Scripture are the very words of God. There is no higher authority than those words because what Scripture says, God says. These words speak for God. They are the mind of the Lord. And there is only one proper response to the revelation that God gives to a genuine prophet. It is obedience, trust, and rejoicing. I trust it, I obey it, and I rejoice in it. 
and a genuine prophet, a true prophet of God. There was no question that Elijah was that. And we can debate how we come to determine those true prophets. It's not worked out for us very specifically in Scripture, but he was clearly a genuine prophet. The happy land drinking in the rain, remembering how thirsty it was not long ago, attests to Elijah's legitimacy. And there was a smoking crater on the top of Mount Carmel that also attested to his legitimacy as a prophet of God. His vision of God on Mount Sinai, identifying him with Moses, assured everyone that he was God's prophet. And so Elijah prophesied, speaking the truth of God to the kings of Israel. And here he writes the words of God, the equally authoritative word of the living God to Jehoram in Judah. And so there is only one way to handle that word for us as well. And that is with trust, with reverence, with obedience, and with joy. Or be crushed to powder by it. It is the word of the living God. This word, as Justin prayed this morning, that brought the world into being. This word of power is to be received and obeyed. In that we are not turning our minds off, we are allowing our minds to be turned on. To see life from the angle that God has revealed, to receive His truth, is not to become dumb in our minds, but to have them alivened to reality. And this was the case with every prophet through every age of salvation history. What the prophet says comes true every single time because it is the word of the living God. Now, what do you think? Did this make the prophets popular? We know, obviously not. People do not want to hear the word of the Lord. And so often what they would do is blame the prophet, blame the messenger. The one delivering the message of God's truth was the one that they turned their animosity upon. So to be a prophet, you weren't going to be a popular dude in Israel. When the environment is pro-sin and anti-God, it's going to be difficult. Just in my reading this week through the book of Jeremiah, you see this in Jeremiah's case. It's just so, such a useful parallel here. Then the Lord put out His hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. So, in this place, knowing the orchestration of God, we are not to question that, because, or to say, because these are human words, they can't possibly be true. They have to be mixed with some error. God says here to the prophet, I put my words in your mouth. And I will declare my judgments against them, this is against Judah, for all their evil in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands. But you dress yourself for work. That means pull up the loins of your 
of your garment so that you can run and work. Arise and say to them everything that I have commanded you. Do not be dismayed by them lest I dismay you before them. And so that is to, to marshal the word of God was a stewardship, not you deciding what you wanted to say, but you being faithful to the message the Lord had given you. And behold, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar, and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. Those who had corrupted the ways of the Lord. Here's my lighthouse on a rock picture. Here it is a fortified city, an iron pillar, a bronze wall. That's you in the midst of this chaotic world. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. Well, humiliation would also taint Jehoram's political and military legacy. And that closes out the chapter with Jehoram's kingdom crumbling in humiliation. Verse 16, And the Lord stirred up against Jehoram the anger of the Philistines and of the Arabians who are near the Ethiopians. And they came up against Judah and invaded it and carried away all the possessions they found that belonged to the king's house, that is the king's household, not his palace in Jerusalem, and also his sons and his wives, so that no son was left to him except Jehoahaz, his youngest son. So we see the military disaster that he suffers. His kingdom begins to fall apart as armies from the south and east rebel and attack Judah. This, what we're looking at here is the power of sin. I mean, to, to look at it, we look at it from different angles, just historically this is what happened. We are looking at the power of sin. We see a man stripped of his wives, his children, says sons, it probably includes daughters, but we see a man stripped of many of his possessions, a significant loss of wealth, bereft of family possessions, and yet he clings to the sensual freedoms of his cult worship. He refuses to repent, his soul rages against God, and against the Lord's word, he clings to his sin. He loses everything dear to him, but I must have my sin. This is the beaten path of so many alcoholics, drug addicts, sexual deviants, workaholics, and popularity seekers as well. I will lose relationships. I will lose legitimate possessions. I will lose everything that really matters in life because I must be pleased on my terms. An inordinate desire morphing into an inordinate love ruins everything good in that person's life. What we're staring at here is the power of sin. May God help us avoid such an end. 
one of the ways we do is by recognizing the danger that is there. To know, to see, to recognize, to be aware of where sin can take us. But with that, to receive the Word of God humbly, repentantly, thankfully. May God help us. This was all an end that Jehoram did not have to face. He could have avoided by repentance. We've seen that in Ahab's example. But he just clung to his sin to the bitter end. And his life was destroyed. In a sense, sin became his God. And he is willing to go down with the ship. Secondly, a painful death, according to the prophet Elijah. Verse 18, And after all this, the Lord struck him in his bowels with an incurable disease. In the course of time, at the end of two years, his bowels came out because of the disease, and he died in great agony. His family gone, much of his wealth stolen, the glory of his nation now lies in shambles in the face of humiliating military defeats. His approval ratings are in the toilet, and now he lies sick unto death, suffering from an illness that left him utterly miserable. One commentator surmises that he suffered from it. Here it is. An inflammation of the nervous tissue of the great intestine leading to the decay of the mucous membrane with the decayed organ then passing his body in tube-shaped excretions. Ouch. That's horrid. And I imagine the man was severely tempted to have serious conversations with the royal executioner. How, How horrible an end. And the picture for us is not just certainly feel bad for this guy or we throw this story in there because it's sensational. It is for us to see the wages of sin is death. And so he dies in great agony. I said that his approval ratings had dropped very low because his people made no fire in his honor like the fires made for his father's. He was 32 years old when he began to reign. He reigned eight years in Jerusalem and he departed with no one's regret. They buried him in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. Not an honorable burial. He departed with no one's regret. When you serve sin, when you abandon your soul to the sensual pleasures of a godless heart, You leave behind you nobody who cares. Nobody who grieves your passing. No one who honors your memory. Sin sucks you dry and leaves you as a husk, a shell of nothing. And that's how this man's bitter life ended. The agony on his deathbed was a reflection of the God that he served. Not to say that a believer can't die in great agony but there's glory beyond. For him, it was simply judgment. And the nation said, good riddance, moving on. Again, this narrative is preserved in God's word in part to warn us against the folly of rejecting God's truth. It just stands there, this uh, negative example. And 
the truth of God also stands there like an unmovable rock which the most violent sea of human strivings can never move. It is Jehoram that got crushed against the rock, not the rock that was crushed by Jehoram. And it's always that way. Jehoram knew this. God provided him with a godly grandfather and a godly father to look up to. Jehoram could see the outcome of their faith. He could see the blessing of God in keeping with his promises to Israel under the Old Covenant. Their lives were not easy, but they were blessed in direct consequence of obeying God's counsel according to the Old Covenant. But Jehoram chose to spurn that heritage for his own selfish purposes. And I think there's certainly a very direct application to those of you who are young people. If you're living at home with mom and dad and you're growing up in this church because your mom or dad or both come to church, let me talk to you directly. As we think of Jehoram, as he looked to his godly parents, really there's a direct application to you as you live with godly parents by God's grace. Let us all understand that there is something within most of us, perhaps all of us, that loves to venture out on our own. There is a temptation that says, I'll find my own way. I'll figure out what's right for me. But if you have godly parents, parents who are striving to honor God's word, they're not perfect, they are sinners, but for you, wisdom is figuring out what you should keep of their beliefs and way of life. Undoubtedly, you won't keep it all. But what should you keep? What should you hold on to? Do not throw away anything that conforms to God's Word. That is utter foolishness. Your task in life is not to figure out how much of what your parents believe and practice you can do without, but rather to look through them to God and to His truth and to say, I will never let this go because it's right. You will never prosper doing or believing anything that is out of sync with the life-giving Word of God. Do not live in reaction against your parents. Do not allow some hypocrisy or small point of disagreement to allow you to throw away the truth that they live and embrace. It's not their life ultimately that's at issue. It's what God has said. His Word is life. Cling to that. And I know your parents pretty well. Believe me. Our first desire is not that you follow everything that we do. Our first desire is that you are united by faith to Christ and that you obey Him in everything. Do that and all else will fall in right place. And for all of us, as we focus on the wisdom of aligning our lives with God's Word, remember that the secular world can only stand in the moment with its peers. It's here that we see the richness of our walk with the Lord. They can only stand in the moment with their peers. Being on the right side of history for them means standing with the trends of the day as they are right now. But as believers, we always stand with those who have gone before 
as conquerors by faith. And in that grand heritage, we must recognize that we are all called to stand strong against the chaotic, sensual, godless ways of the world that is blind to the beacon light of God's revealed word. That has always been the calling of God's people. And we feel it, don't we? The sea is turbulent. There is a raging against the truth of God. This is our lot as God's people, to stand true in that word. So let us stand with Elijah. Let us stand with our Savior, ultimately, who bore the ultimate hostility from sinners as he bore witness to the truth. It did not end well for Jesus in a physical sense. And he did not say to us, well, I've gone that way so that you don't have to. He said what? Take up your cross and follow me. As I say repeatedly, we can only be popular in one place. Either here or in glory. you got to choose. And Jesus did, when he was threatened... He did not threaten in return, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And so doing, he paid the penalty of our sin for the healing of our souls, says Peter. The righteous dying in behalf of the unrighteous. May we in joyful fidelity then labor to align our lives to his word day by passing day until we meet him in glory. And just reading this morning from Psalm 119, I would just commend, I just I couldn't believe as I read it, how much of what is said here is found in that psalm. Read it. Think on it in light of what we've seen. This word is our life. It never changes. Our blessing is to trust it, to obey it, and to rejoice in it. And though the blessings of the new covenant are not similar to the old in their physical application, there is an eternal reward that awaits those who trust that word. God's promises will come true. And we can cling to that. By His grace, may we do so. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank You that I'm not Jehoram. I want to thank you that as far as I know, there's nobody here who's Jehoram. And we want to stop and thank you because that is simply grace. We do not obey your word because we're good people. We haven't come to see it as your word because we're so enlightened in our own strength. But by your saving grace, as we have come to be baptized in the Spirit, the Spirit taking up residence with us and teaching us that this is indeed your word, witnessing to that truth in our spirit day after day, to know that this is the word of the living God, and to know that blessing comes through obedience to it. This is just grace. We're not Jehoram's because of what Jesus Christ did to give life to our dead souls.
because of what you have chosen from eternity past to accomplish and do in his name for the joy of his people for all eternity. We are blessed and rich because of what you have done in your grace. May we stand not with the Jehorams of this world seeking sensual pleasures that sacrifice everything important in our lives, but may we stand with Elijah and say, this is the word of the living God. May we do so winsomely, graciously, but courageously and zealously. Lord, we need help as a church to preserve your word in this world, to speak it out, to not be ashamed of it, but to let its light shine. May you give us the courage to do so. May you teach us your word, and may you draw to saving faith anybody who's headed down the road of Jehoram. Bring them to a place of genuine repentance. Even today, we plead in their behalf. Through Christ, amen.